Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Ellie Confer, filling in for Rabbi Avi Killip. What if tshuva meant more than turning away from sin? In his lecture, Recreating Ourselves Through Tshuva, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg looks at Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik's halachic man and considers the role of self-creation during the process of tshuva. Let's listen in. And my topic, which is chosen for the days of tshuva and for Hadar's learning program during these 10 days of tshuva, is drawn from the work of Rabbi Soloveitchik, particularly in his writing in Halachic Man, his, which I still consider his major work, on Teshuva. And I think what's interesting about it is because most treatments, and he himself in later years has done impressive and important treatments of Teshuva in a narrow sense, repentance for sins. In Halachic Man, he reflects and repentance in a much broader framework. And that's the framework I'd like to share with you because I think it, it broadens not only our lives and our understanding, but maybe what the whole function of the High Holidays is. So tonight I have just an hour, but I, I hope to break it into three sections. I'll try to keep my presentation within 10 or 15 minutes for each section and stop it and hoping that you have questions or responses. And of course, and we'll go on to the next section. And the three sections are one is the he starts with the, what I would call the, the nature of human beings and their calling. What is the mission and purpose? Recreating ourselves through chuva. He sees chuva not simply as repentance for sin, but as self-creation. The first section is the nature and calling of human beings. The second, actually, this outline, which is in front of you. As page numbers, I'm going to go when I go through it, read with you from those pages in Halachic Man. The nature of calling human beings, which Salvechik really speaks of in the broadest possible sense, the human being is called to repair the world. But we'll come back to that. Secondly, in this framework, the Teshuva is not merely turning from bad behavior and sins but it's self-creation. It's not just stopping bad behaviors or bad characteristics. It's to renew ourselves and to shape ourselves anew so that we, in fact, have a positive and a much more powerful development of ourselves as human beings. The third section is what's the goal of self-creation? There is his vision of the fullness of being a human being. So section one, this section reminds us Soloveitchik's vision of Judaism. It's a world religion, meaning it's not just a tribal religion or the Jewish people's religion. It is a vision of what the whole world should be like and should be done, what all human beings, not just Jews, should do. Although he uses the language throughout of Halasat man, that's Soloveitchik's icon or sin for being a religious person. And uh, so I start with that. And the initial question is, what's the purpose of human beings, or as he puts it, a halachic man? Halachic man is a man who longs to create, to bring into being something new, something original. Skipping down a few lines, 
The notion of creative interpretation is not solely in theoretical, but extends as well to the practical domain, into the re real world. So the most fervent desire of a Lothic man, or really a religious person or a human being, is to behold the replenishment of the deficiency in creation. In other words, to repair the flaws, not just in ourselves, but in the world. And what is the accomplishment? What's the outcome of repairing these deficiencies? When the real world will conform to the ideal world. Buddhism offers us a vision of an ideal world. Of course, that's the story of creation in the first chapter. And it's, of course, the messianic vision of the end of time. Quite simply, Judaism believes that humans, in partnership with God, are intended and are called to create an ideal world or change this planet into a paradise. And this is what Salvechik is trying to describe here. The real world will conform to the ideal world. The world is very far from ideal. The Jewish ideal is a world of justice, a world of peace, a world of equality, a world of deficiency, meaning no hunger, no poverty, no war. Obviously, that's not the real world right now. And much of religious living today is adjusting and working in this flawed real world. But the dream, the fervent desire, is to replenish these deficiencies, to perfect them when the real world will finally conform to the ideal world. And the most exalted and glorious of creations the ideal halakha actualizing its mist. Again, when we speak of ideal halakha, the ideal halakha, as in the Garden of Eden, is that every human being is in the image of God. As I've written elsewhere, every human being in the image of God means that every human being is infinitely valuable and will be treated accordingly, which is not the way we're treated now. That every human being is equal. And right now we have a world full of inequality and oppression. But the ideal halakha, Again, the real halafah right now compromises with many of these inequalities. It goes along with hierarchy. It goes along, although it tries to improve them. The ultimate dream is so to perfect the world that the ideal halafah, the halafah of the Garden of Eden, when human beings are fully equal, when men and women are treated as image of God equally and with full realization, it will be actualizing its myths. So the dream of creation claims this dream of improving the world to the point where it's the ideal world and the real world will be the same, where Judaism's ideal of uh, an equal and just world will be fully realized in behavior of society. This idea of dream of creation, he says, is the central idea of halakhli consciousness, which is the idea of the importance of man as a partner of the Almighty in the act of creation. Man is creator of worlds. The longing for creation and the renewal of the cosmos means overcoming the flaws in nature itself. That means overcoming volcanoes and tsunamis and plagues and COVID is embodied. This longing for the creation and the renewal is embodied in all of Judaism's goals. And if we raise the question of the ultimate aim of Judaism, the telos, the purpose of the halakha, in all its multifold aspects and manifestations, 
in every detail implies salvation, in every custom, in every religious behavior, in every ethical behavior. We must not disregard the fact that the wondrous spectacle of the creation of worlds, of improving the cosmos, is the Jewish people's eschatological vision, meaning the messianic end of day's vision, and the realization of all its hopes. But I've always been very moved by it, particularly is because the truth is that the majority of the great scholars, at least of rabbinic tradition, in our time, are in fact quite narrow. And because I try to let you don't expect, to be honest, you don't expect that the chief rabbi of Israel will have anything to say about the environmental crisis or about genocide uh, in Rwanda or wherever it's going on right now, about the, the, the Ubers in, in Uyghurs of the house pronounced in China. His vision is that it is a world religion. The Torah starts not with the story of the Jewish people or the first Jew. It starts with the creation of the universe because its vision is a world in which all of humanity joins in and in which the world and not just Israel or the Jewish people is turned into a paradise. Continuing Salvatic's words here on this route, this is what the function he claims of the human being, of the human race is. God has recruited us to do this one. The peak of religious ethical perfection to which Judaism aspires as man has created. What does that mean? When God created the world, he provided an opportunity for the work of his hands to participate in his creation. The creator, as it were, impaired reality. This is a flawed, limited world, both in nature and in society. There are serious deficiencies. But he's saying God deliberately impaired his reality in order that mortal man could repair its flaws and perfect it. And at the very bottom of this page, man's task is to, quote, fashion, engrave, attach, and create, and thus transform the emptiness and being into a perfect and holy existence. When this world is redeemed or perfected, it will be a holy world and one that bears the imprint of the divine name. Or again, rephrasing it in another, still another way, the same idea about where creation implies. If you look at page 105, again, in the second half of the page, I put brackets around the text. When man, the crowning glory of the cosmos, we're the most developed form of life, and in the biblical creation story, the last, the crown, so to speak, of creation. When you approach the world, he finds his task at hand, the task of creation. He must stand and guard over the pure creator existence, repair the defects in the cosmos, and replenish the privation of being. So man, the creature, is commanded to become a partner with the creator in the renewal of the cosmos. Complete and ultimate creation, turning this world to paradise, is the deepest desire of the Jewish people. At the bottom of the page, Salvatore uses this image. When on Sabbath Eve, a Jew recites the passage of Kiddush by Hulu that God completed the world. And the, on the Kiddush sanctification of the wine, he testifies not only to the existence of the Creator, that's what we mostly think of. Uh, in our prayers, we say Shabbat is an ode, is a signal, is a sign, is a witness 
that God created the world. But he's saying, no, what you're saying, Kiddush, is not just testify the existence of a creator, but, quote, also to man's obligation to become a partner with the Almighty in the continuation and perfection of creation. And just as God refined and improved existence during the six days of creation, just as we have a process of evolution whereby life evolves, so must man complete the creation and transform the domain of chaos and void into a perfect, beautiful reality. So again, as I say, this is the calling, not just of us, but of humans. In a way, what he's saying is that as human life develops, and this is our homo sapiens, develops, you might say, the frontal cortex, which enables us to understand where the first creature who understands this vision, the divine vision of a world perfected. And so we are the first one to understand this. This is what religion is. God turns to humans and says, you can understand this pattern and therefore you can join the pattern of the world moving toward redemption, toward perfection. You can join me as a partner and make it happen. The last line of this page 107, the perfection of creation according to the view of halakhic man is expressed in the actualization of the ideal halakha in the real world. And I said before, what does it mean? The current halakha is not the ideal, it's the compromise between the ideal and the real world. Kashrut, for example, which is about vegetarianism, we should not live by killing higher forms of life. In fact, compromises and says, well, we'll let you eat meat with restrictions. The ideal halakha would bring us back to the Garden of Eden or the Messianic Age. But according to the first chapter of Genesis, all humans, in fact, all creation are vegetarian. And in the Messianic Age, as you recall, Isaiah promises not only will we get back to vegetarian, but even the predatory animals, the lion, like the cattle, will destroy. So this ideal halakha we intend to realize in the real world. And that's our challenge. I won't I don't have time now. He goes on to say, part of this means the concept of holiness or divine presence is not that we escape this world to the ideal heaven or to the world to come or to the higher realms, but we draw the divine down into the real world. So again, in the end, it's the real, the physical, the limited, yes, the flawed world is the one that we're called to repair and perfect, and that's what makes it holy, when we turn it into a supporter of life and into the a world which sustains rather than undermines the dignity of people. This section, however, he concludes as follows, and he presents what brings him to, brings him to the idea of repentance. He says, as part of this process of perfecting the world, we look at ourselves, we are humans improving ourselves is a major challenge. If we're upgrading the world, we want to upgrade ourselves and the human being as well. But here he says, the human finds that he has this capacity for greatness, for goodness, for building a better world, which he calls the image of crime, or the capacity to destroy and to ruin and to harm and to practice evil. He calls that the beast. So the last paragraph on page 109 says Solomon. Judaism declares that man stands at the crossroads. 
and wonders about the path he shall take. There are two also alternatives, the image of God or the beast of prey. He can be the crown of creation that completes and improves it, or the bogey of existence. We can run down this world, we can global climate war, we can destroy species. We can be the noblest, to quote him, the noblest of creatures or a degenerate creature. So that is what brings us to Chuva. And as all I've seen, this Rosh Hashanah, this season of Chuva, is a season when we look at ourselves and say, have I been a beast? Have I been a destroyer? A destroyer? That's what evil is about. I want to turn from that. I want to be an image of God, what it builds. And so he finishes this section by saying, last line on this page, the most fundamental principle of all is that man must create himself. It's this idea that Judaism introduced into the world. Let me stop here and see if you have any questions or responses. And as I say again, what I always have loved about salvation is this vision that Judaism is not just about specific rituals or, or the concerns of the Jewish people, but rather it's a vision of how the whole universe can be upgraded and how all humans can become fully image of God rather than the enemies of existence or of the other species or the climate and environment. Would you say that the best formulation of this is that God created the world deficient or maybe unfinished? Would you say unfinished or deficient? Good question. Richard Middleton, by the way, I just wrote a blurb for he has a magnificent book coming out on the Arcada on the binding of Isaac called Abraham's Silence, which I would like to earnestly recommend you all to. And he has written very important stuff on, on, uh, on creation. So actually the salvation language, as he said, literally, God impaired the world. We could say unfinished. I personally prefer, frankly, to use the language of science in this matter. The world is evolving. Creation is not a one-time event. So when I tell people it's the first chapter of Genesis, that's God's dream. That's not what actually was accomplished in creation. It takes six days, as far as we can tell, this planet alone, or the, this universe that we inhabit and understand is 15 billion years old. But God's vision is that someday this will be a paradise. Someday this will be a garden of Eden. And that's what the messianic story is about. So I frankly, one could use a language of unfinished or impaired because he uses it. Or one could say more bluntly, simply the divine force powers or initiates a process in which world evolves. And again, if you look at the Genesis story, it evolves from chaos to to Shabbat, perfect harmony, harmony and order. It evolves from a world where there is no life to a world that is more and more full of life. And it's one of the great callings of humans to fill the world with life. And it evolves from a world where life becomes ever more complex and richer. So I, I, I'm perfectly happy to, if anybody wants his language of impairing where the partners in completing or perfecting creation, or as I say, I lay the language of God works through evolution and evolving, and we become the partners in making sure that the direction goes after all, the greatness of evolution is a constant pressure and challenge for life to develop, but it can develop in every direction. It can develop negatively too. Our task as partners is to do our best to intervene to make sure that development 
is toward life, toward order that sustains life, toward dignity. And that's how I would go. Okay, so let's move on to section two. Section two is Salvation's vision directly of the limited phrase, Shuvah, what's Shuvah about? So the answer, I would argue, start again. I'll read his own language. As I said, it's more than repentance for evil. Repentance, let me read his language, it's on page 110, you have in your sources, paragraph two. Repentance, according to the halachic view, is an act of creation, self-creation. The severing of one's psychic identity with one's previous eye and the creation of a new eye. Possessor of a new consciousness, a new heart and spirit, different desires, longings, gold. This is the meaning of that repentance, which in the terms is compounded of regret over the past and resolve in the future. But while he's identifying it with the language of Chuba and the classical sources, my mother's based on Talmud, of course, build with this idea you start with regret for your past misbehaviors, a resolution to change, and then in light of the future, you carry out this resolution uh, to become, to act properly. He's giving us a much broader framework from word from the, from the, from the get-go. The severing of one's sight with the previous eye. In other words, it's not just that I'm going to turn from my bad behavior. It's that I'm going to become like a new person, like born again, if you will. Renewal. And what does that born again mean? New conscious, new heart and spirit. Now, again, if I have been evil, new consciousness is out now to be good. But he, again, means it quite a bit deeper. It really means if in the past, we'll see shortly, in the past I have been passive and accepting of the status quo and what's wrong. I'm going to be a new person and become an active, even aggressive, affirming, responsible person to improve it. It means... If in the, in the past I have been doing much of life in routine and unthinking ways, I come out of this as a new person, conscious, deliberately trying to maximize every act of mine toward the side of life and toward creation. So we're talking about recreating oneself, not merely. Since then, on page 111, if you look to the right again, I've marked the, uh, the sources there and the middle of them are about 10 lines down. He says, repentance has two qualities. Repentance may serve to divest a sinner of his status as a Rasha. That's where the new person, you were, you were wicked until now, but you've changed. and you, be, you divest yourself of that status and you become a good person. Repentance may serve as a means of atonement. Most people, uh, in fact, many people in history, including in the Bible, bring sacrifices they're trying to atone, but they're not being punished for the sin. Salvation really plays down the whole role of atonement. To him, this is not about atonement. It's not about guilt because I did bad things. This is about self-renewal and becoming a new person. Now, the paradox is, it's almost, a, I almost it's clever, close to a sense of joke, not a joke, but a sense of humor. So if you look on page 112, it says, the first, the middle paragraph, the first principle of repentance is that the sinner be divested of his status as a Russian, that the sinner shake off his status as a wicked person. This can only be attained if the sinner terminates his past identity, 
and assumes a new identity of the future. See, it's not that you stop cheating or you stop harming people. No, it's you become a new person, a person who is incapable or refuses to do bad, wants to do good. So this is a creator, a creative gesture, he says, which is responsible for the emergence of a new personality, a new self. So it's kind of half humorous to say it. By changing your status from a wicked person, he's basing this on a Talmudic, famous Talmudic passage. If a man says to a woman, I'm proposing to you to become my wife on condition that I am a tzaddik, a righteous person. Now, in fact, he's known to be a wicked and bad person. But if she says, I accept, and I accept on the basis that you are a tzaddik, then this is a valid commitment and the basis of a marriage. Well, how can that be? The Zalvechik's joke is because the Talmud says in that moment when he said to her, on condition that I'm a righteous person, he had already turned inwardly. He had repudiated his past wickedness, and with all sincerity, he's a new person. He doesn't respect that evil person that he was. He's now a new person. So Soloveitchik, in a way, here is playing with the idea by saying, sinner has divested his status as a new person. So you might say, God does not forgive for bad behavior. The person who did that bad behavior is still guilty, and God would like to punish him. But I'm not that person. That was it, Screenberg one. But now I'm Yitz Greenberg too, but that now I, mean, I really changed my life, my vision, my personal commitments. So I'm forgiven, not because I'm forgiven, but number two, never did it. <laughs> never did these things. It's again, I don't know how literally to take this, but he's playing off that by make to make the main point, which is that the sinner not merely turned from a bad behavior, but actually became a new person. He structured what he wants, his will, his fulfillment is not by exploitation, but by giving generously itself. So, again, on page 113, the last paragraph, uh, four lines down, he says, a lot of men engage in self-creation in creating a new eye. So it's not that he does not regret the truly lost past. He's not sitting here feeling guilty of his past behavior, but a past is still in existence. He has these tendencies, he has these drives. What he's now doing is turning them, and he wants to move into the future. He does not fight the shadows of the past. He does not grab with these that have faded away. That is something he puts behind him, yes, because he's now born and new, and he's a new person. And from that time on, he is reshaping himself in light of the future. What's the future? The future is the future of the world, which humans are called to make. In other words, he identifies not with his past, wrong behaviors, anti-environmental behaviors, anti-human exploitation, and so on. He identifies with the future, namely that God has promised us that if we join and if we start acting properly, we can bring the paradise. We can end war. We can end exploitation. We can end oppression. That's what the Messianic age is all about. End the mistreatment of people as unequal or oppressing. So this is in effect, what he's saying is that the future, which doesn't even exist yet, but intellectually, spiritually, religiously, I tune into that future which is promised, which is the target, the goal of the tradition, of completing creation and of perfecting the uh, real world. 
And by identifying with, I take that will to make a better world, that will to upgrade society, to upgrade human beings, to treat them with their full dignity, and I reshape myself. You might say my aggressive drive, which I expressed in the past by taking money from people, I'm now going to express that in making a better world, giving them jobs, paying fair wages, doing all the constructive things. So the future is the motive and the target that helps me shape by rejecting the past, turning it behind me, turning my back on it, and redirect my energy, redirect my talents, redirect my habits to be a person committed to making a better future. The, and on page 115 in Salvini's language, last paragraph, the Halasat declares the person who returns to his maker. When you return to the maker, you're not simply doing a religious gesture of connecting, but you're creating himself in the context of a living, enduring past while facing a bright and welcoming future. So again, it, it has, this is what repentance, again, now using the more traditional definitions, starts with a retrospective reflection. You regret the past. You separate from that which is living, from that which is dead, and you're completely leaving behind. To a vision of the future, in which one distinguishes between a future already present, and one has not yet been created, and I want to create it, I want to bring it on, and so on and so forth. So the main principle of repentance, the last three lines, is that the future dominates the past and they reign over it in unbounded fashion. Namely, of course, so sin and these things started off in a negative way can be transformed under the guiding hand of the future into a source of merit. You can actually reverse some of the bad tendencies and turn them to On the next page, he talks about how the ability to do that is a proof and a reflection of the idea of free will and of the capacity for choice that we all have. And what I find interesting about this uh, direction is that also it, he's using the, in this section the narrow language of specific repentance to sin. But the idea, in fact, is much broader. If you're talking about the future reshaping me or vision, my joining, identifying with the vision of completing and redeeming the universe and making it better, then it doesn't just apply to my bad behavior stopping. It can apply to now having to broaden my imagination, figure out new ways of medicine, new ways of industry that are that are constructive and upgrade, new ways of reducing carbon. You name it. In other words, the future can read can turn not just my bad behavior into good behavior, but expand my good behavior and give it more power, more insight, more constructive application. That is, in a sense, the second dimension of tshuva, that it's, it is the new person. It is turning in light of the future toward the constructive and visionary goals of religious tradition, of Jewish tradition, and of the vision of perfecting the world. Now, it's interesting. So here, and then he applies this. So whereas he concluded the first section by talking about the challenge to be an image of God and not a being. <laughs> Here he ends again with a much broader framework, namely the real point here is you're, you're not just turning from evil to good. The point is you are turning what he calls a man of God. There are two versions, the two choices. 
The two choices are not beast or is bad or good. The two choices are specious man, meaning a conformist, accepting of the status quo, someone who simply goes along with whatever people are doing and wants to be like them, to a man of God. This is the alternative which Almighty placed before man. If he proves worthy, then he becomes a man of God in all the splendor of his individual existence. To be a man of God, you have to develop this new self as an individual, as a creator, as someone who wants to move forward and is not afraid of bucking people or challenging society to do so. So the man of God in all the splendor of individual existence cleaves in absolute infinity and the glorious um, uh, divine overflow. In other words, salvation is in identifying with the future and the world of perfection and the way your own commitment to perfect the world. That's how you reconnect to God. And that's the true connection now. It's not just of a sinner asking for forgiveness. It's of a partner absorbing the enthusiasm and warmth and support of the God and experiencing the presence of God in this world or in this better world that I am part of. The last section I want to turn to then is how this choice, which I said has broadened from bad versus good to being a conventional species status quo accepting to a creative upgrading committed individual for the future is last section. Put it simply, therefore, the climax of self-creation as the human must become an individual, a full human being must express their fullest commitment and their fullest creativity in upgrading the world. So here's Salvechik on the two types of the two choices before us, to drift and to be part of the status quo and be part of conformist society or to upgrade the world and myself. Man at times exists only by virtue of the species, by virtue of the fact he was born a member of the species, and his general form is engraved upon him. He exists solely on account of his participation in the idea of the universal. He is a member of the species, man, an image of that universal. He's just one more example of the species. He claims that this is Greek. I'm not going to get into that. But going down, what's the species man like? His soul, his spirit, his entire being are grounded in the realm of the universal, meaning nothing individual, nothing self. It's all whatever else the whole human or the whole society is doing. So his roots lie deep in the soil of faceless mediocrity. His growth takes place only within the public domain. And that is, of course, what the public allows and what the conventions accept. He has no stature of his own, no original individual personal profile. That's what a species man is. He's never created anything, never brought into being anything new, never accomplished anything. He's receptive, passive, a spiritual parasite. Now, this is a pretty harsh way of describing what I think a lot of people in America would say is a nice bourgeois, middle-class uh, way of life. But of course, he's stressing here again, accepting the world as it is, and simply going along with the conventions. He considers that a real... Uh, failure, and it's a failure to achieve self-creation, which is to bring out all your capacity, including your individuality and your independence. Now, here's the alternative that he's saying, this is the what self-creation should be trying for. There's another man, 
one who does not require the assistance of others, who does not need the support of the species to legitimate his existence, meaning he has an inner gyroscope, he doesn't just wait for public approval. Such a man is no longer the prisoner of time, well, that's another whole set of issues. He exists not by virtue of the species, but solely on account of his own individual worth. His life is replete with creation. He's constantly trying to approve and upgrade both himself and the world around him. And renewal, cognition and profound understanding, because you have to understand this world in order to perfect it. You have to understand the religious roots and sources in order to get an ethical guidance that will enable you to live this way. He does not live on account of his having been born, but for the sake of life itself. He knows that there are two paths before him. There is the path of mediocrity and species man, or the path of individuality and creativity and man of God. Whichever he shall choose, there he must go. He is not passive, but active. His personality is not characterized by receptivity, meaning so you take over whatever tradition you're given, but of spontaneity. He does not simply abandon himself to the rule of the species, but blazes his own individual trail. Moreover, he as an individual influences the many. He's not only not passive, he is not afraid to share and influence and teach other people. He's skipping down. He is dynamic, not static, does not remain at rest, but moves forward in an ever ascending climb. For indeed, it is the living God for whom he pines and longs. This is the man of God. Again, searching, searching for perfection and moving to perfect the world. This is a search for God and for connecting God. And when we meet the redeemed world, when we meet the fellow human being as an image of God and not just as a subject or object of our control or our, our connection, then we experience the divine presence as well. So this is our task. And of course, he, he interprets Hashkafah, the Jewish traditional idea that every human being is on this personal supervision of the divine. Man is obliged to broaden the scope and strengthen the intensity of individual providence. Watch, according to Salvechik, the more you become individual, the more you commit to perfect the world, the more you search through the dignity and the fullness of the other's life as well as your own the more you become a man of God and connected, connected to God. I don't have time. He talks in the next section, and really extreme, that the prophet, prophecy is not really based on religious spirit. It's based on a person having reached such a degree of freedom and choice, individuality, and embrace of life, that God turns to them as a prophet again. It seems to me a bit extreme, but it's, of course, salvaging in his early years carried away by the vision. But the vision is very clear. The human must become an individual, a free person, choosing freely out of freedom to perfect himself and perfect the world, perfect herself as well. The mystery of creation, according to Maimonides, goes this way, skipping down. Man initially is receptive with pure potential. That creation turns that potential into turns that potential into actual action. Creation, by definition, means spontaneity. Actuality turns it into the real world. Action to improve and to explore and to develop. It means renewal. It means aspiration and daring. You have to have all those qualities if you're prepared to defy 
the simple go along, get along and go along and turn it, every act of your life into a full embrace of life, including its risks and challenges and fulfillment. The full potentiality must transform itself into actuality. The receptivity has to turn into spontaneity and creativity. The creature must become a creator. The object who is acted upon, the subject of that, how far would he push this idea if he'll turn to the next page? Creation finds its expression in man's fulfilling all of his tasks. Again, Salvechik in a later piece called Shlichut says that every human being, not only the, the human race or the human species is called to perfect the world, but within that, each human being as an image of God has a distinctive quality, and that quality is the basis of his mission or her mission. Whereas God gives us talent, God gives us uniqueness, God gives us ability, and we, exercising it, become unique and express our tasks and carry them out. God has given us a task to heal the world or to help people or to improve quality of life or to overcome poverty, or overcome sickness, whatever that is. So this is what we do. Creation is expressed in man's fulfilling all of his tasks. Second, continuing, causing all of the potentiality implanted in him to emerge into actuality. So again, on Rosh Hashanah, you know, you're not just simply surveying your mistakes and correcting them. You're supposed to survey, what are my talents? And am I using them? Am I realizing them? Am I turning my potential to actuality? Maybe the answer is I could be a creative artist or a creative doctor or a creative lawyer. I could be a fighter for justice, but I'm not doing it right now, even though I'm doing other things. The answer is that's what you should be doing now, assessing all your capacities and finding which of them have you neglected, which of them have you been afraid to develop because it might take you out of your comfort zone. And this is the moment to turn them into actuality, causing all the potentiality implanted to emerge into actuality, utilizing all of his or her manifold possibilities and fully bringing to fruition his own, her own noble personality. So again, if you don't, if you don't watch it, this could be like Norman Vincent Peale, you know, self-fulfillment and that's it. It's not really, because here in this case, the self-fulfillment, the development of all my talents turns into greater responsibility, a greater sense of the vision of perfecting the world, a greater sense of that I could upgrade whatever field I'm in and make it a better source of life. So we're not talking simple self-development, but yes, it's a form of self-development in which if we work at it, every capacity we have can be developed, brought out strongly and turned into a force for better treatment of people, for better quality of life, for better culture. And of course, this is the unfolding of man's spirit that soars to the very heaven. That is the meaning of creation. I sort of want to finish this section by turning again to Salvechik's language about how we, of course, he then goes on in the next page or two to describe this grows out of emphasizing free will and choice, or it's not simply taking how I am, but trying to really broaden and develop. Again, if I have a capacity for love, I was born with that, but I can develop it. And so the free will and choice is all about 
taking myself and my best possibility and bringing it out fully. So um, Soloveitchik then goes on to try to apply this as follows. To do this, you're going to have to be individual. You're going to have to be willing to buck the system. You have to be willing not to be afraid to be ahead of the crowd or, or, or to doing things that no one has done before. And so he says in 134 second paragraph, Judaism is grounded in awareness of and esteem for the individual. Don't be afraid to be an individual. Don't be afraid to be different and unique. Judaism builds on that. Judaism seeks to fortify, strengthen, and ground the reality of the individual, elevate him to exalt and ontological heights. So that's exactly because it wants to, it wants to help him become the fullest person he is. On the bottom of 135, he then goes on to say, the goal of self-creation, this is the ultimate achievement in the end, is individuality, last four lines, autonomy. Again, you're not just taking orders from God to do the right thing. You have internalized it, and you voluntarily, out of identification, want to do these deeds. You're not, not stealing because God has told you not to. You're not stealing because you respect the value and the dignity and the property of the other person. This is the so the self-creation leads to individuality, autonomy, uniqueness. The things that you do, even the standard things that you do, can be done uniquely and have the impress of your particular. You can bring out more flavor in the food. You can bring out more originality in the research. You can bring out more urgent commitment to justice. This is the expression of your uniqueness. And freedom. Again, you're not guided or forced by society, by its expectations. You're not guided by a, a dictatorial system, but you are guided by a sense of freedom and the privilege that freedom gives you to be the best you can be. I'll finish with one last paragraph. And again, take your comments or questions. The last paragraph, page 137. A Lazic man whose voluntaristic nature we've established is indeed a free man. Again, the language of educated brain Hebrew is, you know, it's all in male, but we apply it to free man, free woman. He creates an ideal world. This is what a free person, and this is what a truly religious person does. Creates an ideal world, renews his or her own being, transforms himself into a man of God. Dreams about the complete realization of the halakha in the very core of the world, and looks forward to the kingdom of God. In fact, it's a meaning a world in which God is not up in heaven, but is present. When I see my, when I see the next person, or again, take the Talmud's image, when you make love to somebody properly, the Shekinah is present, the divine is there. So when I see a society whose environment has been restored, when I see people who have been taken from slavery to freedom or from oppression into dignity, in that moment, I see not only them, but I see the divine presence, which has come down into this world and is realized. This is the holy existence, existence of a world that has been redeemed and perfected, and a society which treats every human being as an image of God. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg, Analia Burstein-Simpson, and Susan Polevsky. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. Additional editing by David Chabinsky. I'm your host, Ellie Confer. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.